Hi all, welcome back to March Mad Men. Hopefully you just listened to our dissection of the Devil's Backbone. Up next is its opponent, The Shining, and our decision on which film wins this Evil 8 matchup. Enjoy! Alright, we're back. I have just cracked a Wolf Pup Session IPA. It's, uh... Usually my backstretch beer for our show. It's not too heavy, not too crazy, not too special, but I like it. And it, uh, it sort of downshifts, uh, takes me all the way home. So, guys, what are you, uh, you going to drink for our, our final film of the evening? I think Vic's frozen, so I'll go ahead. Um, I am going with a, uh, a new entry here. I am drinking the Smog City, a local favorite. The Amarilla Gorilla. Um, it is a tall, delicious IPA from the south side of LA. I recommend picking up one if you come across it. South side. All right, Vic, uh, what do you have? <laughs> I made a terrible mistake in that the only uh, beer that I have cold is a Boulevard Whiskey Barrel Stout, there you go. Uh, which clocks in. At 11.8% alcohol. Normally, I would not want to cap off my evening with something this high, but we're doing the podcast. I mean, I got to do something, right? So it was either this or a, a, a blue moon, and I wasn't going to do that to our listeners. So. Oh, hell no. A lot of nights I have like a shot to go with my final drink, but I'm, I'm being, playing it cool this week. But I know that tomorrow um, when we trade texts about how we're feeling – Vic is going to put some kind of emoji face that's not going to look too happy. That's all I'm saying. Say, <laughs> John, I can't believe you, you wind down with the wolf pup, and my plan is always to switch to bourbon at the end. <laughs> that's, that, I'm now suddenly regretting that I could have just poured two fingers of scotch and didn't. That would have been uh, probably better for me in the long run. But I, I don't know about you guys, but when, when I – when we're podcasting, I start drinking around five or six. Like I downshift for a bit, but like, you know, I need to get into the, the right frame of mind. I start writing up my notes for the show. So, you know, this has been six hours in the making here. I, I did not actually take gummies earlier, but every time we record, I do consider doing it. <laughs> Season finale, baby. I just don't want to give you a mess to edit with later. Appreciate it. Okay, well, we've got um, The Shining on tap here. As with the last film, I'm going to just throw out like a little tidbit just to get the taste buds tingling. Who let Jack out? Now, there's a theory circulating that Danny orchestrated Jack's demise, kind of a roadrunner versus wily coyote type thing. Because if you look at the film, and trust me, people do, Danny kind of telegraphs his moves to lead Jack out of the kitchen where he's hiding in the little, it's not a cupboard, but uh, he's hiding in, in, in some kind of container. And he leads Jack into the hedge maze. Now, we know that Danny has mastered the maze, or he could have mastered the maze at this point. Turns out he did. But it's possible that Danny knows that Jack had never even gone into the maze. And this would potentially be the only way that Danny could make sure his abusive father doesn't get out of this situation alive. 
I thought that was interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know that Death by Maze... Actually, kind of think of it, Death by Maze sounds exactly like the kind of thing I would have come up with when I was Danny's age. So maybe that does make sense. Having watched this film like the fucking Zapruder film, I identified that moment as one of the moments when the supernatural really has a direct physical effect on the story in terms of is this a movie about people going crazy in a, a hotel in the Colorado mountains or actual supernatural story? I think there was a little bit of wiggle room, but that is the linchpin moment where you go, well, there's no way to explain that except for this. That would be an explanation except for the fact that he had Jack locked in the storage room. So, like, even if you wanted to kill him, why not just leave him in there? Oh, well, yes. I actually fucked that up because, yeah, that's two different conversations. Okay, so who let Jack out is the is the real linchpin of the film, as you said, Vic. There are many theories about about that. And one of them is that it's dumb, I think, personally, is that there's another uh, door, like, kind of hidden behind a shelf, and Jack finds that. And this is, yes, it's borne out by the fact that with all the sort of inconsistencies as the characters move throughout the space, if you were to draw a map, and believe me, people have, there actually is is another room on the other side of that storeroom. So theoretically there should be a door or there could be a door. And so maybe Jack just found the door and got out. There's also a theory that no one should be locked in a storeroom like that. It's unsafe. And so that like weird kind of handle thing that Jack has his hand on against the door very conspicuously, that actually is sort of a fail safe on the other hand. If you look at all the the array of bolts and locks on the other side of the door, that would certainly seem to uh, eliminate the possibility that your magic handily thing on Jack's side could open the door. There's definitely the possibility in the Danny theory that I mentioned before that he Danny opened the door because if if he keeps Jack locked up in the storeroom you know, somebody could eventually let him out, police, whatever, and ultimately he's Danny's going to have to worry about Jack again. But if he, in this tactical way, lets Jack out and eliminates him, that's the, that's the ultimate solution to his my father is an abusive asshole problem. So you're saying that Danny might be kind of a psychopath. No, but I mean, like, there's so many theories about just how abusive Jack really is with Danny. Like, I think part of this overall theory would be the idea that maybe the woman in the room 237 or 217 or whatever, depending on the book and the movie, if she's not really there and it was actually Jack in some way that strangled Danny, uh, we certainly know about what Jack did to Danny in the past. Uh, there's a, even the thought that at the end of that crazy, you know, memorable scene where they're sort of sitting together on the bed and uh, talking that maybe that, that scene went south. Danny's, his life is on the line here. That's his main concern. So I don't think that eliminating Jack would be necessarily a sign of psychosis, more like self-preservation. Well, either way, I think this, John, this is an excellent way of, of leading into this. Just 
to broach the subject of once you start to go down the rabbit hole of the shining and what it means and what the theories are out there, it is a deep, dark, supremely weird rabbit hole. And thank God the internet exists uh, in order to provide us with an entrance into that, into that weird hole, because it's, wow, there's a lot of really strange people out there who have seen this movie a lot of times. If there's one thing that the internet is really great at, it's giving you access to look into big weird holes. (laughs) I'm so glad you picked up on that, Rich. The internet will give... I I heard that come out of my mouth. As an outspoken, like, non-fan of The Shining... I actually really wanted to understand why it is that people have so many theories and have spent so much time pouring over this film. And I feel like I went down uh, a lot of really interesting uh, rabbit holes, but I'm, I'm not sure that I'm any closer to understanding what the, what the fandom comes from and why people have spent so much time really trying to hash these theories and building maps like you're talking about out. So that's the thing that, that, that really intrigues me. I'm, I'm happy to, to, to delve deeper into any of the, the theories that, that you guys have, but I also want to delve into why people have these theories in the first place. Well, it does sort of tie into the historical significance because that's one of the things that's really special about The Shining is the fact that people are still doing that. I mean that 30 years later we had the Room 237 documentary come out detailing all the crazy people uh, – no offense to the, the crazy people – but all the crazy people that are – have dissected this film in such minute detail to try and tease out these theories of what it's really about. I think a lot of it just has to do with the ambiguity in the film. There's a lot of things that are left without explanation, and so there's a lot of room for people to put in whatever their their sort of thoughts and ideas. Or is it a minotaur? Is it about the the slaughter of the indigenous peoples? There's the, the, there's stuff in the movie to support all of those things, or at least most of them, and so that gives it a life that sort of continues to to live on in a way where it, it really is just a film that's entered people's consciousness. I mean, I think if you say Red Rum, if you say All Work and No Play makes Jack a dull boy, people who have never seen The Shining know what it's from. And that's a really special place to land in in terms of film history. I think it all kind of ties back into one of the most interesting things to me that some people see as a negative, but that it's that conflict or tension between Kubrick and King in whether or not this is supernatural. And I think that's kind of what we've been debating with sort of theories of, you know, is there a possibility that Jack wasn't released by out of that storeroom by the ghost or um, was there another way? And thus, that's if that's the definitive proof of ghosts in this film, which I think is very arguable, by the way, maybe we'll get to that. But if that is the fulcrum event, there is a possibility that you could read this in quote-unquote Kubrick's way, which is as little supernatural as possible. And here's another quote for you that I do think is interesting. 
It seems quite apparent that Kubrick had little affinity for the ghost elements of King's story, and yet was unable, for obvious reasons, to abandon them entirely in favor of his preferred psychological approach to the material. And that's, again, this blogger, film editor, Kenneth uh, George Godwin, who I discovered. And I think that that is kind of that that push-pull dynamic of Kubrick's this is the only quasi-supernatural movie that Kubrick ever made. And obviously, King's novel is, you know, front and center. There's no doubt. There's no games about whether or not this is supernatural. So is that tension a good thing? Well, it certainly leads to some of these ambiguities and these theories and these open areas that, that can hinge. You can hinge the whole movie on these moments that, that aren't 100% clear and that, that you could justify any number of readings right down to this is a confession of of faking the moon landing (laughs) so i think that 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 food for thought aspect of this it's actually benefited by the fact that that kubrick is not 100 percent on board on in making a haunted house movie but i will say i come down very strongly on the fact that there's no really serious realistic reading of this movie that is not supernatural because what, why does Wendy see what Wendy sees? Like, I think that, that alone, we can go on, but I think there's no way that Wendy would be seeing the specific things that she sees just basically, you know, because of her own mental breakdown. Albeit, yeah, she is having a mental breakdown. I don't think there's an argument about that. One of the interesting quotes that I came across when I was, was poking around on this was an interview with Kubrick. Uh, it was in the Washington Post in 1980, just as the film was starting to come out. And one of the things he said is this is fundamentally a story about a family going insane in this very remote, isolated location. And so there is a sense in which, yes, like this is just about three people going insane. I'm with you, John. That that reading doesn't hold up to me. I think there is there is obviously and necessarily a supernatural element. I think that that interpretation of Danny being the one who lets him out of the storeroom is, I suppose, plausible just in the in the abstract. I don't think there's anything in the film that really supports that. This is a supernatural film. This is a haunted house movie. You're going to have a hard time swaying me to any other interpretation of it. But that said, part of what makes it so fascinating is the openness to interpretation uh, that comes along with it. I did revisit the film again for this conversation, and I really enjoyed going through the the pages of of fan theories and the the lore and other people's thoughts about the film. Uh, I still don't find the the film itself especially engaging. I still find it to be a little bit of a bore still. I, I do think that the thing that you guys are, are debating back and forth can also be partially explained by the fact that like these two ideas, they don't have to be like mutually exclusive. Like the, the film can fundamentally be about a family going insane and there can be a supernatural component that's exasperating it. Agreed. And I guess like that would that would be my take on what's going on in this in this movie more or less is that both both things are true. It doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. Well, Rich, I, I just want to point out because the, literally the top of my notes in The Shining versus The Devil's Backbone 
what I wrote was that this is the, the personal versus the clinical. I don't share your view that the, the shining is kind of a bore. I'm really intrigued by the film and, and I've watched it many, many times, but if there's a criticism of it and of Kubrick in general, it's that there is a, a distance. There is something cold and impersonal about it that is literally the opposite of watching a Guillermo del Toro film. And that's at the top of this when I said I found a lot of interesting sort of synchronicities and, and weird ways in which these films complemented each other or played off of each other for the purposes of this discussion. That was one of the things that really jumped out at me is Kubrick it's like Cronenberg it's there's there's you don't have a deep personal connection you don't get the sense that Kubrick has any feeling towards Danny in the way that Guillermo del Toro clearly feels for the boys in that orphanage and I feel like that does make the film a little harder to love and invest in I wouldn't normally do this, but I'm literally going to read the same quote again that I did at the beginning of the show. Del Toro's lush, emotional romanticism is a far cry from Stanley Kubrick's cool detachment in his big haunted house movie. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you're saying. But what do we make of that? Is that good? Is that bad? Does it really fucking matter? I mean, I guess that's where we're, where we're at. I'd argue that it's bad for me. From an audience engagement, well, at least for me personally, it's bad from an audience engagement point of view. It's fair to say that I find the film intriguing, but I would actually say that that intrigue is more fueled by other people's opinions of the film and getting me to think about it than it is watching the actual film for its own face value. Okay. Well, I, I have to go off here. This is this is going to be a patented John rant. So let's 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 do this. I don't see how we could ever do a movie for this show that gets a, a higher food for thought grade than The Shining. Obviously, more people have thought about this movie than say Suspiria, Evil Dead, American Werewolf in London, or The Fly. Which I, I list those movies because those are my other favorite movies in this genre. I don't mean haunted house movies horror movies of all time. Dawn of the Dead is up there, but it's not in The Shining's League when it comes to thematic interpretation and scholarly thought. I mean, there's just so much to speculate and wonder upon here. And even beyond the questions of artistic intent or directorial confessions, you have like just fundamental questions about the movie itself to argue with Rich here. Like, putting aside that stuff... I'm really interested in how does the mythology work? Is there reincarnation in this world? Something else that Rich brought up in previous podcasts, like the ending and what does that mean that Jack is in that photo? I actually love pondering that question. That's fascinating to me. Why was he there on the 4th of July in 1918? And what does that, what is that telling us? Was Jack doomed from the start? Did he have any agency in this? Or was he somewhat predestined in some way because his soul has always been linked to this place and he has his role to play and he will never be able to escape who he is and, and the power that this place has over him. I think that's fucking fascinating. I don't care what you know somebody thinks about Kubrick confessing to the moon landing. It's right there just in the movie itself. 
What exactly also is the evil here? That's fascinating to me. How unified and sentient is it? Is the Overlook one thing, in at least the sense that there's management with a capital M running things? Or is it just a disorganized collection of disparate, sad, hungry, eternally unfulfilled souls? I want to know that. I love thinking about it. What exactly in the movie now? I'm not talking about King's fiction. What in the movie do the the ghosts want from Danny? And yeah, don't think about Dr. Sleep here, but like just looking at the movie, what is their end game or their desire for him specifically? Someone with the shine. What would that, what would that do for, for them? What exactly is Tony? Does Halloran have a Tony? Does everyone with the shine have some version of Tony or is he specific to Danny in some way? Is he a ghost in his own right? Like a soul with a consciousness and some agenda? Or is Tony simply a self-defense mechanism for Danny? A child's translation of his own exceptional ultra-extrasensory perception? Some necessary filter and organizing principle that would help him understand these unfathomable insights that are being thrust upon a child far too young to process them in anything close to a healthy and rational way? I could keep going here. I just think that this movie has, just in terms of the plot and the mythology and the implications of the characters, putting aside all the what did Kubrick really mean stuff, I think there's a smorgasbord of food for thought here. So it gets an A++ if we were back to the scorecards for me on food for thought. I mean, I think that's great, and I'm very excited for you, John. But... (laughs) I would actually say that, like, well, that that's sort of the antithesis of what I was expecting when you said that was going to be a, a John Rant, a signature John Rant, because all that is well and good for 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 you, but I'm just saying, like, on a per level, like, none of that mystery has ever reached me, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. I'm I I like most of the questions that you're bringing up, even though I feel like. There's certain stuff like the, as I discussed before, I think like Tony and like even like the the shining component of it almost seem incidental to the rest of the story. And uh, nothing is, gives me any intrigue as to why they're involved at all. It feels like it's just a mishmash of horror stuff put together by a director who we've already established has no interest in the genre in the first place. So what did you I mean, expect me to say? <laughs> I, I'm yep. just, I'm just saying, like you're like you're talking about how this film like has such such widespread intrigue and appeal to the general public, but the whole point, as we've already discussed many times on this podcast, and we did with the Devil's Backbone, is that this has nothing to do with what other people really think. It's how does it make you feel? Did you think I wasn't passionate about anything I said there? <laughs> no, 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 Rich, Rich, you're, you're misunderstanding. It's about how it makes John feel. That's what, that's what we're voting on. Yes. Well, but, but, but yeah, again, like that, how else am I going to rant except personally, I'm saying that those are the things that I find fucking fascinating about this movie and it has nothing to do with what everybody else thinks. And I, I, I'm sorry if I confuse things by skipping over the first category, we're on food for thought here, like not the cultural significance thing, historical significance. We can double back to that, but, but, but all of those things are coming straight from my heart personally. Yeah, and, and I and I get that. That's good. I'm glad, and I agree that the, I think that there's a lot, there's a lot to be taken from the film. And if anything, what I feel like I got from the experience of listening to other people's food for thought, including yours, 
in your points and the things that Vic's brought up and the things that, that, you know, I've encountered with like fan theories and stuff like that is that this is definitely a meticulous work. It is certainly a film that had a lot of thought go into it and has left a lot of mysteries behind. And I understand that that really piques people's imagination. It's certainly a film of remarkable images and it is definitely a film of very memorable and indelible moments, as as you point out, Vic. And all that stuff, you know, adds up to being bits and pieces that really stick in people's imaginations and get rolled around in their in their heads a lot over over time and, and end up like creating more questions. And don't get me wrong, that is no small feat at all. Are you personally interested in any of the questions that I asked in my quote-unquote rant? (laughs) Like, do you want to know answers, or are you interested in pondering any of them, I guess? I mean, we'd have to go back and, like, and kind of parse out all the questions that you you threw out there. But I'd say, like, let's let's say I'm interested in, like, 40% of your questions. Okay. If we're just kind of, like, ballpark it. But I'd also say here's here's the other thing, John, is that like I guess this, that's what I'm trying to say about this is I find the discussion interesting, but when I watch the film, I am not engaged by those questions. And the, the one exception may be the the management that you referred to. That was something that grabbed me this time is how well they dance around that idea of who exactly is is running the show, so to speak. Um, and pulling the levers in, in Jack's brain. That grabbed me a little more this time than, than it did last time. But just by and large, I feel like I, I owe a debt of gratitude to the fans of this movie for making it in any way engaging to me because I'm not getting it out of actually viewing the film. There's a the line, just the management thing made me think of this. I think it's it's Grady who says to him, I and others have come to doubt if you have the belly for this and that I and the others is such a wonderfully oblique, nonspecific phrase that I think he's sort of, he's sort of gesturing in the direction of management without actually saying it. I agree. That's one of the great mysteries in this film. I do just for perspective. I thought this was fascinating. I, I, I talked about the uh, Washington post interview with him in 1980 at the end of that article, the the writer who was not anyone I recognized from my sort of studies of film criticism said, and I'm quoting here, years from now when the films of 1980 had become pop culture history, The Shining is likely to be viewed as further evidence of the degree to which pure escapism dominated the entertainment scene during this downbeat economic era. And I just like – I can't think of anything that's – Further from the truth, and and Rich, I think you're backing it up. That like they're like, oh, here we go. It's just another Marvel movie, just churning out the factory, like pure escapism from Stanley Kubrick. Well, that's a wonderful, well, I, wonderful segue to historical significance, Vic. Don't get me wrong, Vic. I I would definitely not call this pure uh, escapism, and I would say that I am like by and large, I am just like not a huge Kubrick fan. I just find his his style like a little stilted. I mean, you mentioned before that like there, there's certainly parallels between this and, and devil's backbone. It's a very different version of, of the same weakness, 
that we talked about where it's like the auteurism, if that's a word, on display in, in either film, I think works to their to their faults sometimes. And that this is such a tightly wound and tightly controlled film that no one really knows what what was being thought, even though a, a mountain of thought was put into it. And I guess like you at the end of the day, like you can label that as a as a good thing or a or a bad thing, depending on how you react to it. Well, I really want to get into some of the negative perception of this movie when it came out. And I think that that really is leading us in that direction. And one of the things that was widely said, and I think that these people have a a point, is that, and and people are even saying this today, like the few naysayers um, of The Shining, including the guy I keep quoting, the fact that Kubrick had them do so many, many takes, like just infinite number of takes creates somewhat of an artificiality and an exaggeration in the performances. That is something that I, I, I see it. It doesn't detract from my appreciation of the movie, but there is something over the top. Let, let's face it. I mean, love it or hate it about the performances of both Shelley Duvall and Jack Torrance himself, Jack Nicholson. The fact that the kid, Danny Lloyd, has the most um, restrained performance in the film. Scatman Crothers is pretty big as well. I'm not blind to that. And and there's somewhat of a weird artifice and almost like caricature or cartoonishness to some of the, the moments in this film because of that, that quality And thus, The Shining was nominated for two Razzies at the time, including Worst Director. Kubrick was up against the likes of Robert Greenwald's uh, Xanadu in the Worst Director category. And Shelley Duvall was also nominated. She faced off against Olivia Newton-John and Farrah Fawcett for Worst Lead Female. Some of the negative things said about this film which, by the way, was the only one of Kubrick's final nine movies, nine movies that did not receive a single nomination at the Oscars. Here's, here's what Variety said. The crazier Nicholson gets, the more idiotic he looks. Shelley Duvall transforms the warm, sympathetic wife of the book into a simpering, semi-retarded hysteric. Um, yeah, don't, don't come after me. I'm just quoting Variety. Stephen King said, as far as I was concerned when I saw the movie, Jack was crazy from the first scene, and it's so misogynistic. I mean, Wendy Torrance is just presented as this sort of screaming dishrag. So let's let's bask in some of this negativity way beyond Rich's somewhat, like, you know, shrug lack of passion for the movie. This movie was, like, regarded very badly when it came out. The other King quote that I I read about that I think was actually a a more recent one even was um, he called it a a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is also a pretty, a pretty astute version of it. I mean, uh, the, the misogyny element of it is certainly, is certainly intriguing. And with regards to historical significance, I think plays into, you know, anyone who's seen like the, the documentary, that his daughter, right? Yeah. His daughter. Vivian. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone who's seen that documentary is, and has sort of seen the, 
the kind of like psychological torment or read about the psychological torment of Shelley Duvall, it's pretty easy to to pick up on a certain level of misogyny that was inherent in the filmmaking as well as the the film itself. You know, but if you if you put that aside, the fact that it's that it's cold and it reduces their characters to to character, I mean, I'm certainly inclined to agree with that. I feel like they're they're actually kind of not giving uh Wendy's character enough of it of shake. I feel like she at least attempts to like fight her way through it and she's also certainly someone who has overcome or is trying to overcome, you know, a, a deeply flawed and a mutually like destructive relationship that she has with, uh, with Jack Torrance. I feel like there's a little more depth than maybe those reviews are, are giving them credit for in terms of her character. Well, yeah, I'm not at all agreeing with these reviews. I mean, I'm just stating like that, that, that Kubrick has this weird effect on people. And in, in a 1987 interview, he actually elaborated on this phenomena himself. He said, the first reviews of 2001 were insulting, let alone bad. And an important Los Angeles critic faulted Passive Glory because the actors didn't speak with French accents. When Dr. Strangelove came out, a New York paper ran a review under the head, Moscow could not buy more harm to America. The critical opinion on my films has always been salvaged by what I would call subsequent critical opinion. And I think that subsequently, and justifiably, just for example, to dovetail off what Rich just said, Shelley Duvall's performance is deservedly appreciated today. Absolutely. It is, but it, I mean, it also kind of drove her out of, out of film, basically. Well, that was more the experience, not the quality of her performance. That's true. No, she. I agree. I mean, she is good in it, but it is also a a sort of subjugated waifish performance, or uh, not performance. The character, the way that Kubrick's drawn the character. I, John, something you said pulled this thought into my head that I just want to articulate very quickly, which is one of the things that I feel like we've been critical of in. Not just the devil's backbone, although I think this does come up there, but also the orphanage and Ouija origin of evil is that they reach too hard for some kind of happy ending. They look for some kind of heart, some kind of uplift. They want to leave the audience with something that feels a little better than some of us want from a horror film. And that seems to be a strike against them. One of the things that I find interesting, and I talked about this when we initially talked about The Shining, that in the ending of the book, Jack Torrance has a moment where he really has Danny cornered and is ready to kill him and has his his love for his son overcomes that that desire to kill that's being fed into him by the hotel and allows Danny to escape and then he blows up at the hotel. And that Kubrick looked at that and went, that's too corny, basically. There's too much heart. There's too much emotion there. That's not what I want out of this film. And rewrote it in a way that took that very saccharine element out of it and made it a much colder, darker film, which I think is what King really objected to. Oh, I have really two very important things to say there. I don't want to cut you off, but I'll just say the first of them because I think it might be where you're going. It's so important is that part of why King hates this movie is because Jack Torrance is him. 
Like he was not a recovering alcoholic or drug addict. When he wrote this book, he was in the depths of it. And the irredeemable uh, Jack Torrance of the movie is a broadside against the character of Stephen King himself. Just wanted to throw that in there. No, I think that's true. And I heard that – I heard a very similar point made on the, the Faculty of Horror podcast. If any of these other podcasts, by the way, are listening to this and want to give us a shout-out, I'm just saying <laughs> you know, we're, we're available for that. But no, I, I absolutely agree with that interpretation. I think that's that's a great deal of Stephen King's problems with the film is this weird personal attack that it felt like by stripping Jack of that redemptive moment that I think that's what Stephen King was very much writing for, that there, that there might be some redemption for him as a father uh, and, and an addict in the face of that. So I think that's, a, that's absolutely spot on. But yes, that, that Kubrick, again, if I was going to find a criticism for this film, it is that there's something cold and distant about it and yet what's cold and distant about it is the antithesis of the thing that we criticize in a lot of these other films. And so I, I don't quite know how to square that circle. I don't know where the, the, the balance is between those two. And I don't uh, – it's not that I 100 percent hold it against this film or anything, but I don't feel for the characters in, these, in this film in the way that I feel for the kids in the orphanage in the devil's backbone. That's not the, the sole determining factor of what I love or appreciate or want out of a horror film, but it is a factor. I, I, I don't know if I agree with you just like in the simple, like uh, instantaneous visceral test of what if the Danny Torrance we see in this movie had, had died at the end. And I, I think that would have devastated me. Like, I, I, I think I need that kid to get out of this alive. And I think I would have been, really upset, if not traumatized, I mean, especially as a kid, but at any point, like if, if, if that kid had, had met a terrible end, I think that would have meant something to me. It's a valid point. And I hadn't, I hadn't considered it from that perspective, but I still think that there is something clinical about this film that is at once effective in some respects and also keeps me at a distance from it in others. And I think that Guillermo del Toro and Juan Antonio Bayona and even Mike Flanagan have the inverse problem that they – I'm involved in the characters and I care about them in the same way that I feel like the director and the writer care about them. But they do it to such a degree that they feel a need to provide some kind of uplift at the end that Kubrick does not. I agree with you in the sense that maybe those are extremes and this is an extreme and I think we would all prefer something that is not an extreme, something that could somehow nail it right in the bullseye and not feel too cloying or fake or completely tonally shifting in a, in a saccharine direction, but wouldn't be as completely heartless as this movie can feel or sort of 
devoid of meaning. Even as that snow cat descends the mountain and they get away from the hotel, you're not like cheering. It, it, it is somewhat still this weird emotional detachment. Is there a perfect um, middle ground? Absolutely. I think there is. However, I will say if you're going to fail, and I, I use that term very loosely on one side of the spectrum or the other, I would prefer that you fail in Stanley Kubrick's direction than the direction of the orphanage. Yes, John, if only there were some system in place or some method we could employ to compare this movie against many others of a similar <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a whole, like I, I agree with, with what you're saying. Um, I just want to revisit real quick one of the things that King was talking about with, with Jack and the fact that he starts crazy, which I would kind of – I would argue against. Um, I don't feel like Jack necessarily starts – crazy but i would say that one thing that keeps me from fully engaging with the the sort of narrow character arc of the of this family is that jack i mean he doesn't like them to, to from the get-go like i feel like that's made pretty clear um both through like dialogue and then just like and body language and the way that he reacts to them i mean he definitely doesn't like wendy um from from the get-go and he's pretty cold to to Danny for the most part. And the first time that you really see him engage with Danny on any sort of like emotional level whatsoever, he's already become like, you know, he's like he's checked out psychopath, putting him on his knee at the end of the bed. So it's not like this movie leaves a lot of mystery in terms of where it's going. And Jack, while maybe not starting completely crazy, never really goes anywhere as a character other than just becoming less and less restrained in the way that he feels, which I guess on its own is somewhat interesting, but it doesn't give you much to work with or sink your teeth into from a character perspective. Yeah. It's not that kind of movie. Like as psychological as this movie is, and as much as people would say that Kubrick is more interested in that than, Spooks and Spectres, as you said, <laughs> Rich. Um, but yeah, it doesn't go into any real psychological depth with, with Jack Torrance or really any of the characters. It, it's more an experience or it's more transporting the audience into a frame of mind, I think. And it's it's putting us in a weird emotional and psychic state. That's that's sort of my uh, interpretation of it. And I have, I have no problem with that. Rich, one of the things that made me think of that I've always thought is one of the strangest moments in the movie that always sort of hangs with me is when they're riding up uh, in the car to the Overlook and Jack is telling them about the Donner Party mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Wendy is sort of upset that he's talking about it and Danny says, no, it's okay. I, I saw it on, on television. And Jack says in his – it's all in the phrasing and everything – See, it's okay, honey. He saw it on the television. <laughs> and it's yeah. like there's so much disdain for both of them in that sentence. I really I, – I don't think I'd ever quite articulated it the way that you did, that you're absolutely right. Jack doesn't like either of them. And the <laughs> idea of being trapped in this hotel with two people that you really don't care for is – is sort of a horror, you know, just all by itself is a horror film without anything else. 
I, I think it, that's not necessarily – I mean, I'm not disagreeing completely, but isn't that also sort of a societal critique that he's this sort of – I mean, yeah, this some of this I'm taking from the book, but he's a, a teacher – and he has this kind of – and an author, a, a struggling writer, and he has this kind of that, – that struck me as this cynical view of what, you know, television represents and, it, and its accessibility to children and what, you know, the, the, the authority of television and, and, and that sort of just kind of a – kind of typical, to be honest, critique of what TV was exposing kids to at that time. That, that I think that's at least 50% of it. That's definitely I, an interesting perspective, but like just, just Jack's general tone when speaking to either of his family members yeah. could be labeled cold at best. But I mean, I think part of it is that he has this sort of bitter, sarcastic, cynical view of the world. That, that scene in particular, I think is more a reaction to what he perceives as Wendy's criticism of him, mm-hmm. right? He's like, see, it's okay that I talk about the Donner Party. He saw it on TV. I can talk about whatever I want. You know what I mean? Like I it's think that's that- part of it. But, I mean, he's also yeah. – I don't think he's actually angry. I don't think he's actually triggered. I think uh, it's sort of like just a sort of snarky. Maybe not angry, but it's even like a – I don't know why this is the one that's jumping out to me. But there's a there's a segment much later in the film where he's speaking to uh, the bartender whose name is escaping me. Lloyd. Lloyd, yeah. He, he refers to Wendy as like – he's like, I'm having problems with the, uh, the old sperm bank. Mm-hmm. Him like oh, yeah. referring to her as that is, is not him talking about her from his current like psychological state of becoming – you know, untethered from reality and, you know, losing control of like his like aggression. Like that is clearly a term that is meant to represent how he thinks about her on a daily basis prior to showing up at this hotel. And and I don't know that that's like bad in the sense that like artistically or dramatically, let's remake The Shining. And Wendy will be like um, Wendy in Ozark, if you've watched that show. Or let's just say, you know, she's like a an amazing uh, CEO type. And if you put Jack Torrance with this dynamic female who's like smarter than him, stronger than him, more morally, you know, has a better moral compass, and all of these, you know, wonderful qualities and superlatives, how does that change the film? I don't, I don't know that that actually, I mean, it completely changes the dynamic and then it's just like, well, he's, I guess he's jealous of her and he resents her for her superiority. But the fact that this movie takes place and his wife isn't this incredibly dynamic, strong figure, I I think that that makes it somehow more believable or plausible or an easier route to, to, to go where the character ends up going. And yeah, yeah, that works. I'm not saying she has to be. I'm just saying it's a very short road to drive, which is, you know, which is, is something to consider when you're talking about a film that is, this generated as much thought as it has is it's a movie about a guy who hates his family and then gets locked up and then supernatural or no, you decide, decides to, you know, act on those feelings. So there you go. A quick question. Would this movie be better? If the Jack Torrance at the beginning 
is like really a, a decent guy. And my, my first thought to that, and I'm sorry, I, I really want to throw this out to you, but I have to somehow answer my own question real quick. I feel like that would work if we were doing a Mike Flanagan um, eight to nine hour Netflix miniseries. But I think with a movie uh, like this and with its general disinterest in charting that arc, I think it actually works better that we don't have to take a character from A to Z and he actually starts on M. Go ahead, guys. Like, what do you think? What, what is this movie's interest? But, guys, sorry. I, want, I just want to jump in for one second. Are we steering too far off of our structure and into yeah. what would what we would be talking about in a deep dive? I, I actually agree with you, Vic. I, I had that thought I almost said a few minutes ago. Oh, it sounds like something we should be talking about when we give this movie a loving autopsy. Because I'm pretty sure this is going to get a loving autopsy, and I mm-hmm. and I don't I don't want to I don't I don't want Correct. to blow our load here. I, I agree with you. Okay, so. I think that we should let this descend into a screaming name calling. <laughs> Making Rich do a loving autopsy of this movie will actually be somewhat akin to Shelley Duvall having to act in the movie. <laughs> All right, well, let's try to wrap up the historical significance section. Doubling back, the fan theories, sort of the larger influence and effect on culture and movies. Any, any final thoughts on that aspect of it? One thing that, that has irks me about the historical significance of this film and does color my opinion, I think in a, a negative way perhaps, is that I do think that this is one of those movies that also has a cult following partially because it has that myth of the madman director that it's it's all about I me mean, when when you talk about the shining with anyone you're only minutes away from someone talking about how you know it was only supposed to take what like 14 weeks to shoot instead it took 7 months or you know he shot like so many you know thousands of of feet of film and how like Kubrick drove Shelley Duvall insane like this is definitely a movie that has its own Uh, cult of personality just around the filmmaking itself it's always strikes me as something that is of the 70s like that was a very attractive thing you definitely saw it with coppola uh coming up especially with like apocalypse now this alluring you know vicariously lived story of a of a visionary that's just too full of passion to be like affected by social or societal norms and it's just like – it's like the art school equivalent of like the cop who doesn't play by the rules. And for some reason that seduces people's imaginations. I think people like to imagine being on the set of The Shining almost as much as they like being in the world of The Shining. I'm not sure why. There's nothing really about this world. There's definitely a – there's a cinematic appeal to being deep inside a creative mind that's that's that fevered. But at the same time, you know, when you see the behind the scenes of this film, like it was still just people hanging out in a cold hotel and and sound stages and trying to to make sense of what this guy was was piecing together. And so I'm grateful for the fact that he developed this great little piece of like cultural mystery. But I also find it a, a little gross. Rich, I think all of that is absolutely true. And 
really does feed into the mythology of the film. But the thing to me when it comes to the, the sort of historical significance is the, the degree to which this film has, has woven its way into our cultural language. The fact that any one of us and any one of our listeners could almost certainly throw out one of the jokes from the shinning on The Simpsons or that, you know, and everybody would get it or that I think in the last Super Bowl, certainly, I don't know if it was a Super Bowl commercial, but recently there was an ad with Brian Cranston playing the twins from The Fucking Shining that was utterly disturbing, by the way. But the fact that people are still calling back to it, you know, 40 years later is kind of crazy. Like it's you kind of can't overstate the historical significance of this film, especially within the genre. There's maybe five movies that have the recognizability of Jack Nicholson sticking his face through the cracked door of the bathroom and saying, here's Johnny or the twins in the hallway or the blood coming out of the elevator. I mean, that stuff is all culturally significant, and that's really a hell of an accomplishment. Boom. I can't argue with that. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing segue, Vic, because my thoughts on this subject are exactly down that road. I just, there aren't a lot of devil's backbone memes. <laughs> But there sure are for The Shining. I mean, this movie has been parodied a thousand times, which is a compliment, not an insult. Its its crucial images, as you said, Vic, are ingrained on the collective unconscious. It's really fascinating how a movie can truly be this divisive, in a sense, at least historically. Most people do love it now, other than Rich and yeah, a few others. But And still be unequivocally part of our culture. I would say that The Shining is often imitated, never duplicated. It kind of remains unique and impossible to top. No movie has outshined The Shining. I shouldn't say it's impossible, I guess, but nothing in my mind has been close to doing the specific things that this movie does brilliantly. No movie is close to doing it more brilliantly. As I put it when I wrote a college paper about The Shining, every frame is infused with malevolent purpose. And yes, that purpose is probably Stanley Kubrick's. And I am paraphrasing there, but that's the gist. In my mind, Kubrick plus King is an unstoppable cultural combination. An uneasy combo, perhaps, because they, they are at odds with one another in their vision. But I think that combo just makes a film that is unique and special. So, and I, I think generally speaking, we all agree on that. And and certainly, you know, doubling back to the personal, that's that's my opinion of the cultural significance of this film. So, like food for thought, this this hits it out of the park in that category, in my opinion. Let me, John. You just brought this up. How much would you guys pay? to see Stanley Kubrick's version of it. Oh God. I mean, right. Yeah. That would be I mean, amazing. If, if ever there was a move, there was a, there was a, a King story that needed a little bit of distance and a better ending. When you said that it's King and King and Kubrick together, I, I sort of flipped through my Rolodex and went, what would I like to see Kubrick do? Holy fucking shit. Would he crush 
a four-hour It movie. The only problem there, Vic, is, and it leads me to, I don't know what critics said this, but they said not only as a seminal work of the genre, but perhaps the most stately, artful horror ever made. They said that about this film. And that's not really a complete sentence. But it leads me to the thought that I don't think Kubrick would have made it because I think this movie was already on the borderline of what he wanted to do. And I think that it it would have been too inherently fantastical. And I think, like, given, weirdly, just my knowledge of, of Kubrick based on researching for this podcast tells me that the, the, the fact that he never made any other supernatural movies but The Shining, I think it would have been a bridge too far for him. He well, just, he should have had a better agent. <laughs> I just think he wasn't interested in fantasy. Okay, that's a, that's another story, but that statement seems crazy. I think he certainly had an interest in fantasy if you just look at his back catalog. But wouldn't call like Strange Love or 2001 Fantasy? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What about Tom Cruise married to Nicole Kidman? I mean, that's a fantasy. <laughs> I mean, 2001, nothing about that movie is ghosts and, and goblins and, and you know, you know, you know fantasy. You, you, you didn't say horror. You said you said fantasy. I'd say science fiction for me, like, definitely. Oh, like, I think fantasy and science fiction are two, two different things. Like, he was interested in AI. He was developing AI with Steven Spielberg. That's completely, you know, I think within his his level of fascination, but I don't think he wanted to do a spider clown that eats children, you know, and, and, and changes forms. I just, I think that's too out there for him and too unmoored from reality. Personally, that's what I think. On, on the contrary, John, I think that's too on the nose for him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to rewatchability. <laughs> <laughs> Let's tackle this one. I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw mine out first here. If you force me to watch this movie every October as a Halloween ritual, not something I actually practice, this would be a title that I would have little doubt about my ability to accept the tradition with. It's, it's really hard to it, imagine John Evans getting sick of The Shining. I would always, just because it's who I am, prefer to watch new things rather than old things, but if... I went more than like five or six years without watching The Shining. I think I would miss it. And that's rare air for me. I'm not like that with a lot of movies. So it's hard to imagine a movie scoring much higher for me on a scale of rewatchability. I'm sure I've seen this movie more than 10 times. And for me, that's a lot. There's only, you know, 10 movies I've seen more than 10 times. It always offers me something new based largely often on where I am in my own life. Obviously, I've gone from Danny to Jack in terms of my life stage over the course of my relationship with the film. And it becomes two different movies right there, depending on you know who you identify with on, on an innate level. During this season of the show, I've said that what I fear more than something terrible happening to me is somehow being coerced, tricked, or just my own darker nature compelling me to do something terrible to those I love that taps into a deep and dark fear for me because I do have darkness in me. The idea of using a few extra foot pounds of energy per second does resonate with me. It's appalling. I'm aghast at the thought, but if you ask me who I'd rather be in this movie, Jack or Danny, I'll pick Danny. 
even if there's a possibility I end up lunch for the psychic energy draining ghouls in the hotel, because that kid can live with himself, even if he dies with himself. And finally, this movie came out in 1980. Perhaps it was at the peak of its powers to affect kids and adults in that decade, or even the 90s, in terms of time inevitably marching on and kind of leaving movies behind. Sensibilities and standards and expectations change. But this is a movie that most would argue is not truly dated in any overwhelming way. I I certainly would argue that. Maybe it's as low as 80% now of what it was back then in terms of its power, simply because it's old. It's hard to say, but I can entertain that thought. Even saying that, stack it up against other movies made around 1980, and it has to be in the top 1% of movies that hold up. And very likely, the top 1% of the top 1%. And I would even say that's probably regardless of genre when you look at movies made around 1980. For me, it's got as much rewatchability as one could possibly hope for. John, I don't understand. Do you like it? It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about about not leaving any mystery on the table, John. (laughs) (laughs) You really del Turo'd that review. What can I say? I think we started on on show one with me saying, I think The Shining is going to win the whole thing, but, you know, who who knows? (laughs) I have weirdly, at this point in the contest, found myself leaning towards another movie. I'm not going to tell you which one, but I started off in the same place, John, and I have have shifted my allegiances just slightly towards something else. I'm really curious to see how that shakes out as this competition goes forward. I know you love Below, Vic. <laughs> it's going to be Below, you sons of bitches. Just get on board. I'm not ruling it out. Like, I could even see myself voting for something else. But I do, I do think it, it's, it, it is the juggernaut. It is the juggernaut. I mean, it's, it's the Stanley Kubrick movie in here. You look at everybody else that we're talking about, none of them have any of the movies akin to 2001 A Space Odyssey or Dr. Strangelove on their resume. By the way, somebody said when I was reading articles about this movie, the worst two Stanley Kubrick movies, like bar none, are better than 85 to 90% of movies ever made. We should say totally fair and true statement. My thoughts on the the rewatchability of this because i've john if you've seen it 10 times i've probably seen it 50 times and that's not the most i've ever seen any movie but that's pretty high up there and i what i'm reminded of is there used to be a critic and and writer who has since segged into television a guy named mark bernardin Used to write for the LA Times and Entertainment Weekly. Now he's, a, I think he's a writer on Star Trek Picard. Actually, he does a podcast with Kevin Smith uh, called Fat Man. I used to call Fat Man on Batman. Anyways, he's a really smart guy, and he's got a lot of really interesting takes. And one of the things that he talked about is the fact that he has an autistic daughter who is obsessed with Finding Nemo, and that whenever they went anywhere, they had to have a tablet that had Finding Nemo downloaded on it because if she started to have a, a you know a, a breakdown, if she got into a bad place, they could put this in front of her and she would just zone out on it. So he said, I've seen Finding Nemo 157 times. Like it's, I've seen it more than any other movie. 
I went through a phase where I loved it and then I hated it. And then I came out of the hate and found a place where I really appreciated it in a different way that you can only appreciate a movie when you've seen it that many times. And I feel like that's where I'm coming to with The Shining is that I watched it 30 times where it was amazing and breathtaking and it was it was one of the best movies I'd ever seen. And then I finally got to a place where I was like, I feel like I've seen all this. It's lost all of its impact. Why am I watching this again? And really for this podcast, I feel like I started to come back out of that place and and be frightened by it again and be surprised by it again. And that is a pretty impressive feat. I think we have the pull quote. Vic Wheat says, The Shining is the finding Nemo of haunted house movies. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Because I, I, unlike you, John, I tend to watch movies lots and lots and lots and lots of times to try and tease out. And, I, and a lot of movies stay alive for me that way. This is one of the few movies where I had that dip where I really got to a place where I was kind of sick of it. And I feel like I've come out of that, and that's actually made the movie much higher in my esteem. Really, in the last six months, if you'd asked me a year ago about the rewatchability, I would have said there's a crater coming, and uh, you know, don't watch it that many times. Now I really want to say this might be a movie that you could watch, like you said, once a year, every year for the rest of your life and get something new and different out of it. I think Rich would um, chop up his family with an axe if he was forced to do that. <laughs> but if we, but if we filmed it and watched that film every <laughs> Halloween for the rest of our lives, no, I got nothing. I just gotta say, like, I I think what Vic's describing is is beautiful. You're talking about the the equivalent of like a, a marriage to a movie. You're talking about a, a lifelong relationship where like you've had some highs, you've had some lows, but at the end of the day, like you've really like discovered each other. And I I think that's I think that's beautiful. I'm definitely in a in a different place. Um, you know, I think this is probably like the uh, maybe I've seen this shining four times at this point. And I hit a wall pretty early where I felt a need to uh, to spice things up, uh, so to speak. And so, you know, just to let you guys know, like I, I do take this, this podcast and this process, you know, very seriously. And so I really did embark to, to try to figure out what, what other people find interesting about it. And the immediate thing that, that piqued my interest on this go round is I came across the what they call the, the mirror form uh, version of The Shining. Um, which is something that I believe they discuss in the Room uh, 237 documentary, um, but basically some of the conspiracy nuts out there um, with The Shining believe that there is a a mirror image language going on in The Shining and that the only way to reveal certain messages being communicated by Kubrick is to take the film – and play it both backwards and forwards at the same time, transposing the image so that you're watching the film both play in reverse and play forward at once. And so in an effort to, you know, spice things up in the bedroom, I found a link to it and I sat down and watched the entire thing uh, for this viewing. 
I can't say that it necessarily revealed any mysteries to me, but it did bring to light a precision and a vision and certainly a, a solidarity of thought in the filmmaking that I think a lot of people respond to that becomes crystal clear when you watch it in such a bizarre way. And, and I can't say that, that some of the things that I saw in there that were, that were very interesting also struck me as things that you might get with any movie. I could take the nineties comedy Dick about Richard Nixon and watch it backwards and forwards at the same time. And I'd probably eventually reveal something sort of interesting, but there are a lot of parallels. There are a lot of moments where, you find a collision of scenes, small ones, such as the the fact that when you play it, there's a perfect uh, alignment of uh, Scatman Carruthers introducing the the freezer and Jack Torrance being locked in the freezer happen at the exact same moment. The first appearance of the twins happens at the same time that on the back end of the film uh, – Jack is uh, is in the bathroom with the father who eventually chops them up. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many, many scenes where Jack is discussing Danny or Danny is discussing Jack. And the flip side of it is Jack or Danny sort of experiencing a, a trauma or a, or a vision. There is definitely an alignment. There's a symmetry in this movie that you see even when you're not watching it. In a, in a mirror image form. Symmetry is important to this film. The twins are the crystallization of, of that, but you see it in, in many, many frames of it. And it does feel that while the film probably was not edited in, in such a way to, to have these things actually coincide, um, you know, and I know there's a lot of theories about numerology and the fact that like you can trace the staircases and, and, you know, like you can develop like a golden ratio after off of the, the framing and that there's a I know there's there's even theories about the paintings. There's there's 21 paintings that, that show up on the wall and those paintings all have animals and those animals all, all represent different things. But also the 21 paintings, if you number them, they keep showing up in different locations in different sets. And apparently if you map those out and draw spirals on them, it reveals all sorts of different things, which it, on one hand sounds crazy, like. I like we've all read them. They, they sound, they sound crazy. But on the other hand, there really is something when you look at the film this way that you realize there truly was a method to it. And that method has a lot of secrets and there's secrets to reveal. Vic, I guess like, it's not crazy that, that you would watch a film that many times and start to reveal new layers, even if they're layers that aren't quite as esoteric as the, the ones that I'm talking about. I love finding new ways to, to look at movies. Um, I love, I love the quote unquote, like druggy ways of, of re-experiencing um, films like this. And so this was really entertaining in its own right. And it, but it did reveal the possibility of a movie that has a deeper layer. And, you know, as we push forward in this, if we make this movie go on to the, to the next round, I'll say what I said last time, which is like, I hope I get there. Rich, um, I, w- I want you to take some gummies and experience Stockholm syndrome. And being <laughs> being the prisoner of this movie, I, I, I really hope you learn to love it next time. <laughs> yeah, 
I think I think that's definitely the next step for our for my relationship with The Shining. <laughs> well, I think that takes us to the vote, gentlemen. <laughs> Which film is going to advance to the Frightful Four? What do we What do we call in the next round? In any event, it's 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 crunch time. The Shining versus The Devil's Backbone. I'm going to say let's start with Rich. Yeah, Rich, cast your vote. Oof. Okay, uh, I promise I'll tr- I'll try to be brief here. This is tough, man. I feel like I've, I feel like I've been here before. <laughs> it's like uh, on one hand, it's not it's not a movie that I would necessarily vote for based on my experience. And on the other hand, I feel like there's a, to a certain extent like the world is always telling me that I have to vote for this film. All, all that said, those, those those misgivings aside. I mean, I stand by everything that we said about this This and Devil's Backbone. I really love The Devil's Backbone. I really appreciate it, but it's not like I'm more excited about watching The Devil's Backbone again. And at the end of the day, that rewatchability, I think, is a, a key definer of how we feel about these films. Yep. So, you know, if I'm going to take if I'm going to take gummies and, and trip out and become a character in one of these movies, <laughs> I'd probably still rather do it with The Shining than I would with The Devil's Backbone. So, uh, fine. I'll vote The Shining. All right. I like it. A sensible choice. I think you, you're looking forward to what comes next, and I think you did make the right decision for your own experience. This is personal. So, I would have respected you if you really wanted to watch The Devil's Backbone more, but, yeah, makes sense. Okay. Vic, what's your vote? I'm voting for Below. John. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think that's a superior film in this matchup. No. John, has Vic, told, has, has Vic told you about the scene? Oh, no, don't do no. this. Please don't do this. <laughs> what the uh, hell? What's going on right now? No, I don't want to do that. Thanks, Rich. It's fine. Okay, maybe next time? I don't know. <laughs> we're we're going to get there. You'll have plenty of time to make fun of me, and it's my fault for bringing it up, and I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. All right. Put a pin in that map. As I was going through my notes and, and putting everything together, doing all my research on these two films, really, once I hit the rewatchability, this became a no-brainer. The Shining is the only one of these movies, that, that these two films, that I want to watch again immediately. Again, the, the, the Devil's Backbone might be a good movie to share. There are people that I would like to watch it with and sort of gauge their reaction to and, and share it with them. That would be one thing. But me by myself, taking a couple of gummies, thinking about killing my family. Anyway. <laughs> There's only one movie to go with, and uh, it's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. God, you convinced me. I hope my vape pen isn't completely dry, because when we watch The Shining, I'm going to need to be high. Hey, I'm a poet. <laughs> I, I, I got to be honest. Now you guys have me excited about it going on to the next round. <laughs> can we do? Can we do a watch party, guys? Can we all get high and do a watch party for The that, Shining? That should- that should be the final four is that everyone takes 15 milligrams of THC and watch. <laughs> Fuck me. 15 milligrams. That's a lot. A coma. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, I think by virtue of respect to the shining, all I will say is that it has my vote and that's our show folks. That's our show. 
hope everyone's enjoyed listening. It's been a ton of fun recording it, and we're looking forward to the next matchup. So I'm John Evans, thanking you all for listening. For Vic Wheat and Rich Eckersley, we wish you the best, and if your house is haunted, just get the fuck out. Adios! That's good advice. (laughs) Solid. Just solid advice. Get the fuck out. Get a hotel. It's not that expensive. Just go to the Holiday Inn and wheel your TV out to the balcony and get a good night's rest. <laughs>